0: What is up, all? Uh, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we have the pleasure of Andy Schreiner joining us. Uh, Andy is Principal Software Engineer at Lead Genius in Berkeley, uh, California, USA. Uh, where uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about what Lead Genius does? We'll be getting real quick to Andy's backstory as an Accidental Engineer uh, momentarily. but
1: Yeah, so uh, Lead Genius is a uh, sales and marketing automation platform and data provider. Uh, I think our bread and butter is providing really accurate data to sales and marketing teams so that they can uh, reach out to the right people at the right time, get them on the phone, or contact them through through email, and uh, and close more business.
0: Right on, right on. So for our audience that's curious about how you got into software engineering and coding and uh, whatnot. Uh, like myself, I, you didn't do your undergrad in computer science, so how did you get to being a principal software engineer?
1: Yeah, um, so my uh, path into software engineering has been a little bit interesting. Um, I uh, I did my undergrad degree in mechanical engineering um, so my first, uh, exposure to programming was, uh, through MATLAB, uh, around, you know, technical computing, like pulling data off of accelerometers and processing it. Um, and then in, um, graduate school, uh, I was in a PhD program in environmental engineering. Um, I wanted to do work on, um, crowdsourcing related problems. Um, and I found that, uh, the problems that i needed to solve i just had to write software to 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 do that mm-hmm. um and so i started writing a little bit more actually i started with python and django um started uh with a with a little web app that would allow me to uh to solicit some data contributions from people on the other side of the world um and i did that very begrudgingly <laughs> um i did not want that to be like my full time thing um and then after uh, a few years of that, I started to really enjoy it. Um, I'd say even, gosh, three, five, five to six years ago, maybe mm-hmm. six years ago, I would still have said, "No, I don't want to. Don't want to be a software engineer. It's not what I want to do." Um, and I have to probably offer some thanks to one of my PhD advisors, Jim Uber. Really, really smart, cool guy. Yeah. Like Jim, if you're out there. Who, <laughs> Who kind of encouraged me, like, hey, you know, this is actually a pretty cool thing to do. He said one thing that sticks in my mind: Uh, you know, uh, computer programmers are the high priests of abstraction. It's like, Jim, (laughs) you're crazy, but uh, uh, here I am now, a high priest of abstraction.
0: So I was going to ask if your PhD advisors in the engineering program, the non-computer science PhD program, condoned you learning Python and Django to fulfill your thesis or whether they pushed you to avoid hand rolling software solutions.
1: Now, that's a great question. Um, so, so Jim, the guy I mentioned was actually, he's a, uh, a very software oriented environmental engineer. Um, so, uh, he, uh, he was very supportive of that. Um, basically it was like whatever, whatever tools I needed to be using to get the job done. Um, you know that's what what I should be spending my time doing. Um, mm-hmm. So just over time, it was like picked up more more Python, picked up more um, kind of web development stuff, a little bit of like data processing, moving data around, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so just kind of picked it up piece by piece, and um, yeah.
0: So in you mentioned learning MATLAB or being required to learn MATLAB for your more physical engineering. Uh, education uh, what was the learning curve like coming from mechanical engineering to Python uh, was it pretty straightforward what what kind of resources did you find oh, possibly online or mentorship wise because your phd advisors don't sound like they were programmers or coders themselves um,
1: there were a few people in my um, in my research group who were able to offer a little bit of guidance mostly around like as in my at the very beginning of this journey, it was like okay, like what languages should I start picking up to solve some of these problems? And somebody encouraged me, like, "Hey, Python is a pretty pretty good choice." And um, Sam, <laughs> thanks, buddy.
0: Dude, you're the best, Sam. <laughs> thanks. <laughs>
1: um, and then other things like you know, at the time I was running a server in a server room in the College of Engineering, mm-hmm. um, and so like just all of the Linux craft that I needed to like get that thing up and running. There were some some people that were very helpful with with getting that up. Oof, um,
0: that can be a really steep learning curve. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, it it definitely was. Um, but yeah, with you know with some folks in the uh, in the research group to kind of give me some some nudges, and then do just Stack Overflow, duh um google Google, yeah (laughs) i think right now like my main professional skill my most important professional skill is not writing code or even designing systems i am a professional information retriever so it's like if i can formulate the problem then i can usually find pretty good resources to at least give me some different perspectives on that problem so i've just been doing that for like six years and, and putting pieces together and building on on top of that
0: that's pretty distinct from various physical engineering fields like mechanical civil uh one of the really uh, big qualms i had when i was naming this video podcast the accidental engineer is that a lot of physical engineering field folks kind of don't think of software engineering as real engineering uh, there's not really state licensing. Uh, you can't really go to jail for a lot of the field of uh, software if your bugs cause um, adverse outcomes, whether that's loss of revenue in a business or loss of life or uh, medical expenses. So um, did uh, did some of your peers in your PhD program uh, kind of cast a uh, side-eye at you? Uh, when you were when you were going this more soft skills uh, software engineering route in contrast to their pursuits,
1: <laughs> um, no, I did I didn't really get that kind of reception. I'm um, just imagining it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, a, a lot of times the um, the response from folks in academia, and if you're in academia, um, you know. Good, good for you. You keep on trucking if that's if that's your thing. Um, but a, a lot of people they kind of saw me moving out of that and were like, Oh, oh, I want,
0: I want some of that. Interesting. So, just earlier today, interviewed uh, a guy named Jeremy Carp, who's a newly minted PhD holder, um, who had a lot of really positive things to say about his PhD experience, and I think he was in his PhD program a similar amount of time as yourself um your abd is there right? all all but dissertation or close um, to it
1: so I, I i quit uh after five years of work on the phd i took a master's for the amount of work that i had done and um yeah um i'm, I'm through with with academia
0: well for any any academics who are uh spurning uh, Andy's <laughs> characterization of the academic pursuit and uh, jealousy about going into private industry, check out that interview because uh, Jeremy and I talked through some of the immense career benefits to doing the PhD program. And yeah. I mean, yours, yours was, I don't think uh, you would look back at it as a waste of time by no, any it was means. A, it was
1: an incredible opportunity to develop really, really um, like rigorous problem solving skills and not just problem solving but I think uh problem framing problem Mm -hmm. defining is I think one of the most important skills Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying that you know if you're out there in a PhD program you should quit it (laughs) like you know you do you
0: (laughs) (laughs) for sure for sure uh so for people who are curious what all you did in your PhD program what was your what was your area of research and how well did it translate to entering into the software engineering field um
1: yeah so I was working on, um, how to use crowdsourcing employment. So, uh, that's, you know, work, uh, pa- paid crowdsourcing work, um, uh, to create employment in developing countries as a way to target extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like this really huge goal of like totally like shooting for the moon here with the,
0: uh, PhD. Oh, that's uh, like world like, peace work right, right totally, there. But totally. it ties into engineering in that a lot of your peers in the engineering department are working on solutions for uh, like water sanitization and like thir- third-world countries that don't have uh, quite the resources. Their problems can be solved by reducing costs or making better physical equipment to solve their physical problems.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the typical approach to the, the, the big problem of uh, addressing poverty um, within, uh, like, that's the typical approach that environmental engineering departments would take would be focus on clean water, sanitation, those kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was coming in there saying, like, okay, where can we apply engineering effort to this problem in a way that is more impactful than, uh, you know, building a water distribution system, which actually did that... Um, in undergrad, with the organization Engineers Without Borders, and you know, we went to Kenya. We built a water distribution system, and it was like, cool. This is great, but I think we can do more uh, through employment, and that's how I got into like, okay, what are the what are the software levers that I can pull on to uh, to make this uh, this particular solution um, you know, more impactful?
0: So one of the one of the topics that we haven't covered a lot on the show yet is about the area of testing and risk mitigation in engineering, which is arguably what engineering is, is risk mitigation in the physical world or digital world if we're dealing with engineering. So uh, for folks who didn't get their BA or master's in engineering fields, uh, do you mind unpacking what all are in the engineers' toolkits for uh, dealing with or coping with those realities of risk mitigation?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, so so I think the the first of all like in the focus on uh, on on risk in, in inherent there, underlying that, there's a focus on on failure. So uh, I think one of the things that fundamentally, uh, that, that engineering is about is it is oriented toward failure, not success.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, so I have this definition of of engineering in my head, which is um, it is the systematic obviation of failure. And I've googled that, and I can't find if I copied that from somewhere, or if it's just a phrase that stuck in my head. But this is my idea of engineering. So a couple key points there: one, it's systematic. So it's not ad hoc. Um, it's analytical. It's it's thorough. Um, two, it's f- it's focused on failure, um, and three is obviation, which is just a word that I like. Uh, totally could have said Dave. prevention, but I like
0: words. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, failure in the physical world could mean uh, building collapse or structure collapse or. Uh, Electricity going places where it shouldn't, or uh, high speed things misbehaving. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. like uh, one of the the classic, uh, very very kind of real visceral um, depictions of failure in engineering is the Tacoma Narrows Bridge collapse. Mm. Um, this bridge, which under the influence of a particular uh, I think speed of crosswind got into a harmonic mode and was just vibrating um, until it until it fell down. Um, and there are videos of this. You can, well, you can included in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, you know, bridges falling down. Um, in terms of software, though, there are instances like uh, the I think the Thorac Twenty Five. There's this uh, radiation delivery instrument, um, which I think it was during the eighties, maybe, maybe early nineties. Um, there were some incidents where this particular, um, software controlled, um, radiation therapy device exposed several people to like huge overdoses of radiation. And I think resulted in a few, a few deaths actually. Mm Um, so that's a, that's a, Pretty big deal uh, when you're talking about software that that can kill people.
0: That's a, that's a pretty bad failure mode. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, that's pretty bad.
0: <laughs> so what are I, I realize there are risk mitigation techniques uh, for physical uh, physical engineering uh, problems. Uh, do those have good crossover, or what? What mm-hmm. is crossover of uh, physical engineering risk mitigation techniques to software engineering yeah. risk mitigation techniques. Um,
1: so, I think they're really the, it's the same same kinds of of techniques. Um, so, one that uh, that I use um, is called failure mode effects analysis, mm-hmm. FEMA. Um, so, this is uh, I, I learned this tool back when I was. Um, uh, so I, was, I worked as a mechanical engineer it's part of the requirements of the, uh, of the degree program where I, where I got my undergrad degree that you spend a certain amount of time actually working full time during the, uh, the latter part of the, the degree. So I was working with a, um, a medical device company. Um, so like, Okay, we're talking about human health and, and lives here. Um, we're also talking about uh, FDA regulations. So there's a lot of uh, process and a lot of documentation that goes
0: into the analysis of, of risk. Something um, that's often lacking in the software engineering yeah, field. <laughs> yeah,
1: totally different. Uh, we're, they're optimizing for very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so we would do these, these big failure mode effects analysis um, exercises and, uh, you know, there were these big Excel spreadsheets that were included in the documentation sent to the FDA for the approval Mm -hmm. of this, uh, of this device. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so this is one that, um, I think is totally transferable from, uh, from like mechanical engineering to, to software. Um, and so I guess we kind of do like a, a quick rundown of what is this thing failure mode effects analysis um, it at its core it's basically an enumeration of the ways in which a system or a component could possibly fail um, and if you think about it like a spreadsheet so like rows of a spreadsheet are all of the ways that this system could fail um, and then uh Across the, the columns, um, you're looking at uh, what's the likelihood of a particular failure mode, and you could represent that as a probability, you know, 0 to 1. You could just give it a 1 to 5 score. Um, and then what's the what's the badness, what's the disutility of that outcome, whether that's, again, like a 1 through 5 score or whether it's like a dollar value in terms of how much revenue do we lose because of this um, and so you uh, you enumerate all of the possible uh, failure modes, you assign a, a probability and a, 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 a utility score or a disutility score, and then you use that to focus your efforts on uh, risk mitigation.
0: So, so you can rank all of the possible failure modes by their expected downside.
1: Right, right. Um, and I think this is actually really important to, to think about the ranking and the prioritization because uh i think it's it's a certainly something that happens in my head i think it's a pretty common thing you know you're writing some piece of code and you're like oh you know this bad good thing could happen oh i'll write a little handler for that and oh this bad thing could happen i'll write a little handler for that Um, and that's the kind of ad hoc uh, approach to addressing failure it's like well those are the two things that I happened to think of while I was writing this piece of code. Not very systematic. N- yeah. yeah, not very systematic, and maybe, um, maybe we're, we're not catching the ones with the most potential downside to revenue. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: or life or health. Or life or health, <laughs> right. right. <Yeah. laughs> so uh, in software engineering, I, I think some of our audience might not be familiar with the distinction between um, static analysis of a code base and dynamic analysis of a code base. So uh, a lot of the parallels for um, failure analysis and risk mitigation in software with physical engineering uh, have to do with testing components of your software. Like you just described FEMA being applied to testing components or identifying failure modes of components. So uh, in software, a component could be a function could be a class, could be whatever. Uh, However, there's two types of analysis in software engineering. Uh, One where you look at the code as represented by textual data that you or I have typed out in a text editor uh, and evaluate the textual code without running it. Uh, While dynamic analysis is akin to Actually, lighting the engine and seeing how high it goes. <laughs> so, uh, is there a parallel in physical testing um, to static analysis of a code base? Hmm. I realize this. Is, feel free to punt on this because I've I've never thought about this. Topic yeah. Before.
1: Um. Maybe the I, I can think of maybe some some analogies like. Uh, if you do, like, a tolerance stack-up, meaning that you have multiple pieces in a physical assembly that come together, um, and I've got, say, some uh, some constraint here, and three pieces need to come in here, and, you know, I have some tolerance on the thickness of those three things. You can do some analysis on, like, um, given the the tolerances that we've spec'd out, can, can we fit that in there? Um, but I... I think that maybe maybe software is a little bit unique in the ability to to catch some of those failures through static analysis, which is actually great because anything that you can do to shorten the uh, the feedback time from when you uh, discover some failure or potential failure and eliminate it from the system, like that, will greatly increase your your like throughput and productivity.
0: I think one of the reasons that both of us are extremely bullish, at least I am, in, in the job market for software engineers is that the cost of testing is virtually zero. <laughs> in yeah. contrast to uh, some of the prescribed manual tests that are required of physical engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a huge labor portion of the labor market that involves itself in manual testing of software um, that engineers produce. Uh, however, the cost of uh, of reproducible tests uh, is is uh, dramatically low. Uh, every time you run a test, costs virtually nothing. <laughs> so, is is there any uh, odd behaviors or dynamics about uh, the cost of creating software engineering tests that uh, uh, maybe changed your life and workflow coming from physical engineering?
1: Oh, man. When I first discovered automated testing, like you, you just used the phrase, like, changed your life. I'm like, it changed my life, man. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, oh, a well... Uh, a well-written set of tests that, like, really give you confidence that you the pieces of your system and the whole system together working. Like, uh, that the whole thing works. It worked yesterday. I changed some code. It still works today. Man, that's such a good feeling right now, like <laughs> in my belly.
0: Yeah. One of the interesting costs of software testing, software engineering testing, is that some some tests. Are written in such a way that they take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, how how what are the time dollar trade offs with writing software tests? Like what kinds of tests often take longer to run? So you make a, you make a tweak or a change to some software, um, and for example, so these tests that you've written may take thirty minutes to fully. Uh, complete and show whether they've passed or failed with your change. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's kind of the dollar time trade off with software engineering testing? Um,
1: well, I don't have a I don't have a, an equation to, to yeah, simplify I didn't make that down to. Very concise. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess without totally just saying it depends. Yeah. Um, I think it's how how. How many times how frequently do we need to get this piece of feedback you know if it's like every single change to the code base like I need to to run this set of tests like yeah the value in making that thirty minute test into a, a one minute test or a five second test that is gonna be pretty high um, in terms of the productivity of of developers on a team that that it buys back mm-hmm. um, and by the way there's I, there's an important assumption there is that it's, it's a team here. I think the dynamics are totally different if it's just like you working on one one piece of software because you can keep these things in your head. As soon as you've got multiple people working on a code base, um, the, the value of quick feedback of did I break something, uh, it's becomes
0: really, really high. Compounding.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would love to figure out a way to, uh, to to more rigorously calculate that and be able to use that to justify spending, in some cases, more of my time doing that because I think, you know, I have a kind of a gut feeling that uh, in some cases in, in teams that I've worked on that it would be, that the payback would be would be really, really high because mm. there have been cases where I have done it and I'm like, you know, three months later, I'm like, <laughs> man, the
0: payback was, that was so great. Do you, yeah, for career-minded folks whether you're already a software engineer or you're looking at becoming one uh, one thing to judge about an employer is whether they have tests yeah (laughs) and whether they run quickly Uh, these are very reasonable things to ask in job interviews uh, which as is often told to people uh, job interviews are not just you selling the company on yourself but it's the company selling them to you and from a career-minded perspective, from an engineering career development perspective, being with a team that understands the the FEMA analysis of uh, making software uh, sets up a team for success or failure uh, as you get more and more revenue or are handling more and more lives in your product's hands. uh, I think that's something that Often goes understated in college educations is uh, evaluating teams' best practices. I know there's uh, uh, Joel Spolsky's the test test of uh, employers uh, being a good location for software engineers has a lot to do with uh, whether they have automated tests. Uh, whether engineers have their own individual office spaces, spaces to work, uh. <laughs> I, I can't enumerate them all, but they're they're a very idealistic uh, uh, litmus test for employers. That by and large, I think both of us would agree with.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't even think I, I wouldn't call it idealistic. I think it's it's pretty realistic in that like these yeah. are things that well functioning software teams can and should be able to do. <laughs>
0: So one of the other parallels that I thought about when we were talking earlier about physical uh, engineering versus software engineering is the concept of mocks. Mm. Uh, mocks and software engineering are where you introduce some uh, dummy uh, replacement for a component in your software that is instrumented in a way that uh, behaves in a prescribed, expected way. Uh, in contrast to what might be reality. <laughs> uh, but it gives you an ability to isolate components of what might be a bigger piece of software so you can uh, see how software beha- befor- performs with specified inputs and outputs interactions with your other software components. So is there anything analogous in physical engineering to software mocks?
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, like you're describing like a, a testing jig you know, you have some part, uh, and that part fits into some bigger assembly. So for the purpose of a test, you just, instead of having the whole bigger assembly, you just have some kind of jig. You attach some part into that, and then you, you know, put some force on it until it breaks or something like that.
0: Yeah, I'm curious why the word jig didn't make it over time. Oh, <laughs> software yeah, why do we call it a
1: mock instead of a jig?
0: Right? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's another, I know the zealots of software engineering who argue for test-driven development... Mm-hmm. Uh, will say that your software doesn't work until there's a test proving it works uh, does that have uh, something analogous in physical engineering or is there a zealous cohort of physical engineers and civil, camp mechanical or what have you who, um, uh, is there an equivalent of test driven development in mechanical um, engineering for example
1: you know so I'm, I am not actually aware of any and maybe that just speaks to the uh, uh, the, the kind of uh, social uh, need for some folks in the software and engineering field to kind of uh, reclaim some power in the um, uh, in the client contractor kind of dynamic where mm. uh, client is like changing specs, and um, I think it's. It's easier in the in the physical world when the client changes the spec to say like, okay, this you want the engine engine to do what? It doesn't fit now. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's people can very easily see and respond to the fact that a change in the spec causes cascading changes in the product. Mm -hmm. I think in software, um, people are like, oh, a change in the spec, and then. All software is magic, so can't you just make that happen? Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, test-driven development uh, arose a little bit out of that, like mm. that need to kind of reclaim the power of like, no, uh, we can't just take this change to the spec and and uh, and, and still sh- you know ship your product on the same timeline with the same cost.
0: So, I software. In engineering of software, there's an expectation of a race to produce results. I, this is universal, <laughs> irrespective of software. Um, but particular to software, there's kind of a winner-takes-all dynamic to some markets. Mm-hmm. Um, in that effort to <laughs> winner-takes-all, uh, there's kind of a, a trade-off between testing your software and not testing your software. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what have you seen in private industry, in soft, creating software, to be the the breaking points where a team of software engineers who are given a deadline, uh, an existential deadline, uh, throw their hands up and say, ah, we can't test this stuff. We just gotta make it work on my laptop, and uh, that'll be good enough. Is <laughs> is there is there a, a, maybe not a formula you can put out there to describe this, but. Um, have you observed any, totally,
1: totally observed that. And so I think that kind of approach will yield the results that, that you're looking for, for about maybe a month. You know, you can stretch that to about a month, you know, you just like keep hitting harder and, uh, more software faster. Um, and, uh, after about a month, um, when you start to try to stack new features on, or you try to tweak a feature, and and um, maybe you have to do a little bit of refactoring here or there, that's when everything just totally falls apart. Um, and I think the, the the downside on the other set, uh, on the other side of that month, is is steep and painful. Um,
0: so uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, we don't need to get super specific, but are there uh particular parts of or particular software problems that uh, are harder or easier to test oh, uh, totally
1: yeah okay yeah um so the the easiest things to test are like little pieces of functionality that that fit like within one function you know you're gonna normalize zip code strings or something like you can have Input cases, output cases. That's a very, very easy piece of a software system to test. Um, harder things to test. Um, you know, it's it's all about can you uh, can you replicate the failure condition. You want to be able to uh, deterministically create that failure condition. Um, so things that are. I think as you go to bigger, bigger pieces of the system, that's where things get harder to test. That's why unit tests are easier to write than integration tests. Um, But, uh, yeah, any, any system where you have, uh, let's say, so, uh, uh, You've got a a mail queuing system, for example. I bring that up because Max and I have actually worked on that in the past. (laughs) Uh, So you've got some Python code. You've got a Redis data store. You've got a a Postgres data store. You're pulling data from various places. Um, Setting all of that up um, and creating certain kind of failure condition, like, okay, I want to... Max out their memory on the Redis instance so that new messages that try to hit that queue uh, f- silently fail to, to land in the queue. They're just dropped silently. Mm-hmm. Um, watch out. That happens in Redis. <laughs> uh, that's, a,
0: that's a failure mode to, to be really well documented, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um.
1: Um, yeah so, so those kinds of things. It requires um, more infrastructure to, to set up those components. Um then you have to think about, okay, uh, am I? if, if I'm going to run my test and you're going to run your test, are we using the same shared infrastructure for that? Do we have isolated infrastructure for every single test run? There are ups and downs to that. So there's just a lot more trade-offs uh, as you start to involve more components.
0: Got it. So re- the cost of reproducibility goes up as you have more c- components. Totally, yeah. Uh, I know one area that makes... Front-end development really hard is that browsers are your runtime environment, yeah, and browsers are surprisingly hard to mock. Yeah, <laughs> um, they also are doing a lot of really asynchronous stuff, so you have expectations about uh, networking or disk interactions yeah. that are uh, make it make it hard to reproduce a lot of things, <laughs> or. Uh, reproduce them in a systematic way Um, what are some of the I I realize you're not a subject matter expert of front end software uh, engineering alone but uh, what are some of the best practices for risk mitigation in so called front end software engineering Mm.
1: Um, so I don't know that I can that I can speak about what are the current best practices in, in this in this realm, but certainly a few things that, that I think like uh, whatever you can test at the at the unit level, test that don't test that with Selenium. Um, so if you've got that function that uh, you know validates some text input, test it at the unit level. Um, but then, for the kind of overall functioning of a of a web app, Selenium like you've got to be driving a browser and and getting like realistic interactions.
0: Um, so Selenium is software intended to uh, automatically drive through <laughs> a browser. Right. Um, yeah. That that sound is there a parallel to Selenium in physical engineering? <laughs> <laughs> um. Are there automated tests that uh, might uh, move a laser around oh, the cutting yeah, board? T- t- or totally yeah, so totally. Cnc like, machine.
1: Okay, chairs. Right, chairs will go through some kind of reliability testing, mm. where there will be some some mannequin that sits down and gets up, and sits down, not like physically like bending its legs or But there's some some force that is pushed down into a chair and then cycled off and then cycled on and cycled off. Mm-hmm. Um, until, you know, they figure out how many, you know, tens of thousands of times you have to sit down in the chair before the, the springs fail or something. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's your uh, Selenium, <laughs> your bra- mannequin-driven testing. That's that your. sounds expensive <laughs>
0: compared to Selenium. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That's
1: one of the cool things about software. It's, like, it's very yeah. fungible. You can, you can, yeah, add tests, throw them away cheaply.
0: So... Uh, For people who may have gotten into programming without ever learning automated testing, they may have only ever manually tested whether the software they're writing works or not, Uh, what what are your recommendations for dabbling people's toes in uh, writing tests? Um, I know there's a lot of resources freely available online to learn this stuff, but uh, a lot of people, I think, aren't sure of... How to take that first step and write a first test ever? Um, yeah, so I
1: think the the best advice I could give is just write the first test, just just start. Um, but I would say go about it not with the intent of I of trying to figure out what's the perfect test to write. Go about it with the focus on maintaining your own sanity because you're going to be working on some piece of software, um, and maybe today you click through the browser, and, oh, when I click the button, the thing happens. Um, And then I make some other changes, and I go back, um, and, oh, I click the button, and the thing doesn't happen. Um, So now, like, I'm frustrated, because I have to go and click through this series of actions to repeat this thing. Um, So just, I would say, start by uh, by automating the things that you do to test your own software um, to convince yourself that your your changes are not um are not breaking things um so yeah like start with you know uh, focus on your own sanity like an exercise in in compassion for yourself (laughs) um and uh from there you will then start to experience like oh like i wrote this test a week ago that i'm now i'm trying to change this thing and Oh, I actually have to change the test too because the approach that I took to writing the test was maybe like too high level or too low level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you will learn those things as you go through the process of adding additional tests and going back and changing some of the tests that you've
0: written. I think even for those people who um, are thinking about writing their first test career-wise, like we talked about earlier, finding jobs and teams that you can join as a member of uh who are already testing uh, is a very good <laughs> first entree into testing because uh people uh, are invested in your success so they'll give you a watchful eye and perhaps uh, walk you through an instance of them writing their own tests um, uh, you'll also encounter code bases that have uh have existing tests that you might try making a change to on your first day on the job and you break a test that is exactly what tests are for is to make sure that any change that you do on day one on the job without any context about (laughs) whether changes will be breaking changes or not uh, is intended to give you an indication about uh uh changes your changes breaking things so uh, on the job and, and uh, being a member of a team that already has this, these kinds of practices in place is also, I think, a huge, a huge uh, step uh, without having to go Google for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are invested in you <laughs> learning how to write tests and whatnot. So Yeah,
1: I think that's, that's kind of like best case scenario is that you can learn from people who have more experience doing it. Um, if you If you don't have that opportunity um just i would say like go out there and and start writing your first test um because the the value that that will uh create in terms of your career growth now now you're a person uh you're you're i think you're taken a little more seriously if you if you can write software and test software um, I think you're automatically taken a little more seriously uh, as, a, as a professional.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that dawned on me perhaps after my first job out of college was that you are kind of compensated in life based on how much stress you're able to take on. And this is particularly true in white-collar jobs where you're not physically uh, endangering your own body over the years. Uh, because certain people can uh, absorb more stress because they know how to put measures in place systematically to compound uh, their security and confidence in dealing with risks. <laughs> so uh, I, I can't emphasize enough how valuable learning testing is because it'll enable you to confidently take on harder and harder projects. Uh, As both me and Andy know from experience, taking on uh, existing software projects is a very common phenomenon in people's careers as software engineers. Uh, Almost every job you'll ever take uh, involves touching code somebody else has written. And often it involves touching code somebody else has written without any tests. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, a lot of the money in the economy of software engineering labor markets involves bringing in people who know how to write tests to save the day from folks who've uh, tread a little too far astray uh, without tests um, and have reached a breaking point where manual testing is no longer sustainable and their business can't move forward without laying in place uh more and cheaper automated testing yeah
1: i think it's also worth pointing out that uh if you think about that that scenario that you described earlier where you know there's pressure to ship features ship features we don't have time to test and you may be able to get some short-term gains in productivity by that kind of approach and then there will be an inevitable drop off um i think the uh if you compare kind of two trajectories, one which is this up and then the down, to one which is which includes tests, um, which is maybe a flatter, steadier uh, at the beginning, um, when the, the the pain of um, that that uh, drop off is going to be just way way more. The pain to add those tests to take that system that has been. Uh, pushed out the door under under time pressure, um, that it's, it's going to be orders of magnitude more than the tests that were uh, added incrementally during the development of that piece of software.
0: So one of the <laughs> distinguished responsibilities that I want to emphasize for people who are earlier on in their software engineering careers that uh, you and your relatively senior engineering role take ownership of, is deciding when to green light code changes. Uh, Can you describe how, how, well, for one, I think a lot of our audience can intuitively understand how that responsibility of yours in your job uh, entails a lot of handling of risk in contrast to somebody who doesn't have to make that decision. Um, But how do you, in your relatively senior role, mitigate the risk of any given time choosing to hit the green means go button and uh, incorporate changes that a junior software engineer wants to add to the code base
1: yeah um so i can i guess i can talk about kind of a spectrum of experiences where in cases where i've been working with a code base where i thought we had a uh, pretty good test coverage and um i felt pretty confident that any change that was proposed um that uh, we could be we could be pretty sure that um, if if the CI system continuous integration you know our automated test system said uh, thumbs up that I felt really good about shipping that piece of code Mm -hmm. Um, and in those cases I'm able to just like okay there's some new feature I'll actually look at the tests for the feature Uh, I'll look at that uh, you know Way more than I actually look at the code for mm-hmm. the feature. I'll kind of skim the code for the feature because if the tests pass and if you're not doing anything totally insane in the implementation, then cool. Uh, other times, um, I've worked with code bases where I don't have that confidence that any particular uh, change um, is going to be like that. That we're going to catch you know regressions. Um, that a particular change introduces just because our test coverage is not as good um, either in terms of like a percentage number of the code base or kind of more semantically in terms of the our overall testing infrastructure is just not uh, realistic enough um, and those uh, those kinds of changes um, the, the amount of stress that I deal with in in reviewing those changes is is way way more because then, I have to kind of go back to that failure modes effects analysis thing, and i feel like, okay, what are the things that I can think of that this could potentially break, that are you know, outside of our test coverage, um, and you know, do I have time to go check all of these things? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I guess that kind of just goes back to the value of uh, uh, a. Uh, a, a set of test infrastructure that gives senior engineers the confidence to green light changes um, and uh, and and not lose
0: sleep over it. Oh for sure. yeah, no that, I, I think uh, I think the the stress risk mitigation correlation is a big deal and uh, the, one of the things I mentioned in previous uh, episodes is how, Uh, Hammurabi's code uh, is a very uh, uh, effective uh, set of rules for engineers, uh, which Hammurabi's code, for those who don't know, is a really ancient legal document that says any builder of a home that collapses and kills somebody is to be put to death. (laughs) And in software engineering, uh, societally, there's very few areas of software engineering where the risks are so high that somebody might die from a bug. Uh, however, there's uh, very large businesses built on software. And uh, I think the the field of software engineering hasn't matured so far yet as to reach the point where we have a Hammurabi's code for software engineering. Yeah, I think it's,
1: it's still really unclear whose responsibility... That bug that lost the company a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Yes, you know, is it the engineer who wrote it? Is it the manager who, uh, you know, pushed that person to work under time pressure and to not uh, spend as much time on testing? Is it that, that manager's manager? I like think these things are they're really still up in the air in, in the software. Field. Oh
0: yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> the, I'm just trying to imagine the different risk mitigation measures that businesses have in place for when employees like ourselves uh, make the wrong call or uh, the probability of an adverse event, uh, the day comes that that adverse event occurs and uh, we come to atone for our uh, our risks. Uh, I guess the only recourse that employers really have is fire an employee. That's totally an available option. Uh, Another option is uh, sue the employee (laughs) for damages. Although that seems that's the the reason why these two outcomes are really rare. I think is one employees don't have that much money generally saved up. (laughs) They're not quite businesses with deep pockets for another. No employer wants to get the reputation as being litigious towards their employees. They may never be able to employ another person ever again (laughs) to do what they want them to do. But, um, Thirdly, is that when uh, an employee uh, makes a mistake of this sort where they introduce a a bug into the code base and it causes loss of money or, God forbid, lives or health, um, that is a very expensive form of education. (laughs) And, like, you really want to hold on to that employee because they, in some ways have learned a lesson that none of their peers have learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, although how that is effectively communicated to that employee or how you gauge whether that employee has now learned their lesson is a whole other matter <laughs> outside of engineering, I suppose. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've definitely gotten some of those lessons. Over <laughs> I've broken some things. Do you do things? mind sharing
0: any anecdotes real quick? Maybe one before we, we wrap uh, it? Oh
1: gosh. Uh, think of one that's especially dramatic I mean I, I know that I have taken down production servers mm-hmm. um, probably on a handful of occasions with with changes um, imports that's one that uh, in a particular code base where uh, there are two, two main areas one which gets deployed to an API server one which ends up being run in a data processing environment um, so two environments uh, should be tested in two different ways. We were not doing that at the time. Um, deployed some code that had some import changes that was importing some stuff that should only be involved or should only be uh, available in the data processing environment. We were trying to import that in the API and like, import errors, uh, immediate app crash, of course. Uh, fortunately... We have uh, systems in place to roll, roll back those changes pretty quickly, uh, but I've definitely done, done stuff like that.
0: Oh man, I can think of one way worse that both of us uh, encountered, <laughs> yeah. which was a sim- very similar problem where our test environment and live environments uh, are supposed to be kept isolated. However, mm. we created a new testing environment <laughs> with some uh, production settings f- turned on, uh, which led to uh, paying out a very large sum of money that we weren't supposed to, yeah, and that had some very immediate financial consequences for the business that were pretty hard to dial back after the fact yeah, yeah. that in those cases, it's really easy to identify well. Uh, what the cost was but identifying the probability is really hard and mm-hmm. the steps I think we took to prevent that problem from ever occurring in the future uh, were not so permanent I don't think rather mm-hmm. than just to acknowledge that the probability of this happening again is really low right. and the cost was not so high that we, we were gonna put the business out of business right. uh, but man I remember that emotionally and physically Oof. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I think we should yeah. real quick plug um, Lead Genius Jobs if you guys are interested in working on a software engineering team that has tests, yeah. um, that has Andy on it. Uh, <laughs> you'd be working on data, a um, uh, pretty cutting edge sales, Apache
1: Spark data data pipelines, data processing, um, uh, Python, Django web app stuff um, like crowdsourcing, um, human and com- human and machine combined algorithms. Really cool stuff.
0: Big data, small data, everything in between. <laughs> right now we're just keyword stuffing. All so. the data,
1: all the data <laughs> of all the sizes.
0: And I got to pug- plug real quick that if you have any questions for Andy, leave them in the comments. Um, like, subscribe, uh, both to our YouTube channel and our email list. Andy, it has been a pleasure having you join us. I'm hoping yeah, we do it again very soon.
1: Thanks, Max.